I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 20. We are continuing our way through the Ten Commandments. The late pastor Jim Wilson tells a story about a time that he visited a maximum security prison to teach and to preach. One of the inmates in the maximum security prison asked him after his teaching, how can you get rid of bitterness towards somebody who beat up your three-year-old son unmercifully? So Jim sat there with this inmate and answered his question from God's word and explained how that inmate could be free by God's power from that bitterness. And then he said, To that inmate, you know, when you get rid of your bitterness, you can help that person so he won't beat up other little kids. And the inmate said, no. No, this guy cannot be helped. He's not with us anymore. You see, that inmate was in prison because he had murdered that man for what he had done to his three-year-old son. And Jim writes, even though he had killed the man, he was still bitter. Now, perhaps you have never murdered anyone, most likely, but you have undoubtedly been sinned against by people, haven't you? You have been wronged, and that means, I can say with confidence, I know for sure that you are familiar with feelings of Bitterness and anger and rage and hatred and malice, the very same emotions that led that man to murder. And if murder itself cannot remove the feelings of bitterness and anger, then what hope is there? Today we come to the sixth commandment where God addresses this universal human condition. What does God have to say about these things? What grace does he have for us here? I'm just freshly aware after David and Hannah shared that God gives grace through his word. This may be the shortest passage I've ever preached in the Hebrew. It's two words. I'm going to invite you to stand anyway out of our reverence for God's word because this is how he rules the world through his word. Exodus 20 verse 13. You shall not murder. Father in heaven, we pray that as you address us through this commandment, that you would be exalted, that you would grant faith, that you would open our eyes, that you would convict us of sin, and most of all, oh God, we pray that your saving and transforming grace would be at work in us to change us and to conform us to your holy ways. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. God's purpose in speaking this commandment is not merely to inform you that murder is wrong. God's purpose is to conform you to transform you in your thoughts, in your attitudes, in your actions to his holy ways. So my aim this morning is to show you how God makes it possible for you to keep this commandment which you probably thought you were already keeping. And I want to do that by considering three myths or 
three misconceptions concerning the sixth commandment. The first myth is this. The sixth commandment is obvious. When it comes to moral laws and ethical standards, is there any law more universally agreed upon than this one? I mean, cultures vary, people around the world have different opinions on all kinds of ethical issues, but everybody knows murder is wrong, right? Atheists like Christopher Hitchens have mocked God and the Ten Commandments, saying things like, do we really need God to show up on a mountain in thunder and lightning and earthquakes with some divine voice to inform us that killing each other is not such a good idea? Are we really to suppose that prior to Mount Sinai, people didn't know this? Himant Mehta, who's known on YouTube as the friendly atheist, says, we all have morals, we all have ethics, ours don't derive from a holy book, and I would hope that your Bible isn't the only reason you're not out there killing everybody in sight. At first glance, the sixth commandment looks like the least controversial and the most obvious of all the Ten Commandments. But is it actually? You see, While God's law is written on our hearts, without the special revelation of Scripture, we would not know what murder even is, or exactly why it's wrong, or just how evil it is, or what it deserves. It is not so obvious as we think what murder is, and we don't even have to leave our own culture here to find that the sixth commandment is not obvious at all. Yesterday marked the one-year anniversary of the Dobbs decision, the Supreme Court ruling that overturned Roe versus Wade. And we thank God for that. But according to Pew Research, 61% of Americans say abortion should be legal in all or most cases. 61%. I mean, there, there is no debate in America about what abortion does. Everybody is in agreement. It ends the life of a human fetus. But, is it murder? 61% of Americans don't think so. And in many states, it remains legal to kill the most innocent and the most vulnerable human beings. States like California and Illinois and Massachusetts and Michigan and Minnesota, they have either enshrined in their state constitutions this constitutionally protected right to kill unborn children, or their Supreme Courts have declared that that right already existed in their state constitutions. There are seven states in our country that have no gestational limit on abortion, which means you can kill a baby up until the moment of birth, and we're told, that's not murder. Or consider assisted suicide, or what we call euthanasia, which is legal in 10 states in America and Washington, D.C., while many other states are currently advocating and debating legislation to legalize assisted suicide. I would submit to you that it is not so obvious to people what murder is. What a grace that God has spoken to us. You shall not murder. The wording in the ESV captures the sense of the Hebrew word used here in this commandment. The sixth commandment does not prohibit all taking of life. It forbids murder the unjust taking of innocent human life, whether by willful intent or negligence. Scripture's clear that not all killing is 
murder. In the very next chapter, Exodus 21, God authorizes the death penalty for crimes like murder and human trafficking. So there is a civil case, civil punishment that involves the death penalty, and that is not murder. In Exodus chapter 22, God permits killing in the case of self-defense. We see that allowance in Scripture. Likewise, killing in just war is not considered murder. Before Israel entered the promised land, it was God himself who commanded his people to destroy the nations that lived there in Deuteronomy 7 verse 2. What the sixth commandment forbids is intentional, willful murder and what we could call negligent homicide. And in scripture, we see that it makes no difference whether you commit murder with your bare hands in cold blood or if you happen to have enough power and influence and authority you can put multiple layers of plausible deniability between you and your murder victim. Cain rose up and attacked his brother in cold blood in Genesis 4.8. King David had the ability to write a letter to a commander and say, position Uriah at the front, and then when the battle is most intense, fall back and leave him there so that he is struck down. Both are guilty of murder. Scripture clearly forbids negligence as well. Exodus 21 deals with a case where an ox gores a person to death. The owner is not liable unless, this is Exodus 21, 29, the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in. In that case, both the ox and the owner were to be put to death. Deuteronomy 22.8 teaches that property owners are responsible for the safety of people who are on their property. And so if a homeowner failed to put up a railing around his roof because in the evening to stay cool, people in that part of the world would go out on the roof. If the property owner failed to put a railing on his roof and somebody fell off and died, the homeowner was liable for that. Guilty of bloodshed for his negligence. And God's word defines exactly what this commandment means, how we're to understand it. His law distinguishes between unintentional manslaughter and murder. Deuteronomy 19 goes into great detail to clarify that the one who kills his neighbor unintentionally, without having hated him in the past, has not committed capital murder and should not be put to death. God's word is incredibly clear, and God has spoken into a world where people are totally confused and unclear. If these legal distinctions seem like common sense to you, just seems obvious to differentiate between first and second degree murder, negligent homicide, these sorts of things, that's because the Mosaic law has so shaped the laws we've grown up with that even atheists assume this is just common sense and everybody knows it. But they don't know it, except that they grew up in a culture influenced by God's word. It's not so obvious even why murder is wrong. Even if we agree that it's wrong, only Scripture provides a meaningful reason why. An atheist might say murder's wrong, but he can't give a compelling reason. To the atheistic materialist, all you are is protoplasm and carbon. I mean, there is literally no difference in an atheistic world where there is no God. All that, matters, all that exists is matter. There is no difference between kicking the dirt and kicking a baby. It, the atheist might object that he, he doesn't like kicking babies, 
unless they haven't been born yet, but his worldview has no ability to tell us why that would be wrong, objectively. So people would say, well, you know, laws against murder it are just, they're, they're essential to public safety and to stability in society. That sounds good until you think about it a little bit more. Everyone who commits murder does so because they are convinced the world would be a better place without that person. Society would be better off. We would be safer. We would be happier. I would be happier without that person. And oftentimes, since murder is committed between people who know each other, who are we to say that they're wrong? Utilitarian ethics measures everything in terms of the greater good the most good to the most number of people. The problem is that standard can always be wielded to justify killing off any minority. Hitler exterminated the Jews for the greater good, didn't he? So why is murder wrong? God's word reveals the transcendent and objective reason why. Murder is wrong because human beings are the image of God. God makes this explicit in his covenant with Noah after the flood in Genesis 9, 5 through 6, when he says, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. That's how serious this is. This is not the only place in scripture where God makes this clear. Even animals who take the life of a human are to be held accountable for that. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And the image of God is not something that you earn or prove to anyone. It's what you are because you're a human. Every single human is in the image of God, from a fertilized embryo to a centenarian with dementia, from the world-famous athletes with the greatest physical abilities and the most intelligent scholars on earth to a child with severe cerebral palsy. Every human being is in the image of God, and that's why it's wicked to intentionally end the life of an innocent human being. It's not obvious just how evil murder is without God's word either. It does seem like there is a natural revulsion that we have to bloodshed. Thank God for that. But haven't we been largely desensitized to this evil? It is so common in our news, and in our entertainment. Even those who agree that murder's wrong, that it ends the life of a human in the image of God, aren't we often just unaffected by it? Part of it's our limited capacity to feel things. When you hear the news of another mass shooting, just have limited capacities. But God's word helps us sense the horror of this crime. The Puritan Thomas Watson, in his treatment of the Sixth Commandment, gives a helpful summary outline of what Scripture teaches about just how heinous murder is. He says, murder is a God-affronting sin, first and foremost, since man is the image of God. That is, 
Murder is an attack on the image of God. The murder of a human being is to the image of God what vandalism to a a priceless piece by da Vinci or Rembrandt is. But murder is an affront to God in another way. That, That is, murder usurps the authority of God. God is the creator of life, the giver and sustainer of life. Only God alone has the authority to take life, which means anyone who commits murder is grasping at God's own prerogative and exalting himself above God, claiming to have that authority, that right for himself. Murder is an affront against God. Watson says murder is a crying sin, a crying sin. After Cain murdered his brother Abel, the Lord said, Genesis 4.10, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. It's interesting. Today, through modern forensics, the blood of victims literally testifies many times. But more importantly, we know from Scripture, Revelation 6.10 talks this way, the blood of the innocent cries out to God for justice. It's a crying sin. Murder is a diabolical sin. Jesus said that the devil was, John 8, 44, a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. That is, he murdered Adam and Eve and all humanity when he lied to them and said, you will not surely die. 1 John three twelve says that Cain was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Of the evil one. That means he belonged to the evil one. He comes from the evil one. That's his stock. That's his heritage. He was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Murder is a wrath-procuring sin. There are consequences for murderers both in this life and in the next. Psalm 55, 23 says, Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days. And Revelation 21, 8 says, As for murderers, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And I would add one more to Watson's list. Murder is a defiling sin. Numbers 35, 33 through 34 says this, you shall not pollute the land in which you live for blood pollutes the land. You shall not defile the land in which you live in the midst of which I dwell. You know, I think one reason that there's so much talk about carbon emissions and plastic pollutants in the ocean, I think it's because people find it easier to blame pollution on fossil fuels and plastics than to confess the guilt of innocent blood shed in our land. Our land is polluted. Our environment is affected but paper straws and electric cars cannot atone for 25,000 murders every year in America or 60 million aborted babies since 1973. We would not know how evil this is without God's word. And without his word, it would not be obvious to us what murder deserves Just how lightly we take the sin of murder, I think, is evident in our society and some of the absurdly lenient sentences handed down to murderers. In some states, it's possible to receive as little as 20 years in prison for first-degree murder. That is intentional, willful, 
malicious intent. There's a nonprofit organization currently advocating for a cap on punishments, all punishments, for most serious offenses, capping all punishments at 20 years. Nobody should ever get more than that, they argue. I think that just confirms it's not very obvious to people exactly what we're dealing with here. Just as murder is far more serious than we think, it deserves more than we think. God's law was unique in the ancient Near East in the sanction that God required. There were other nations around Israel, their legal codes, we know, they allowed monetary settlements. You could commit murder and then you could pay off the family. You could give some monetary settlement. But God, in his word, requires the death penalty. This is interesting because there are various other crimes in the Old Testament that carried death as a maximum sentence. But for capital murder, the death sentence was mandatory. God told Noah, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And since God gave that to Noah, and every single person on earth is descended from Noah, it's obvious that this civil penalty for murder was not limited to Israel as a nation. Listen to how seriously, this is Numbers 35 again, that same verse I just read. You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land. Here's the rest of it. And no atonement can be made for the land, for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. So Thomas Watson wrote that one way murder is often committed in our land is by not executing the law upon capital offenders. He said, a felon having committed six murders, the judge may be said to be guilty of five of them because he did not execute the felon for his first offense. But we would not know what murder deserves if it was not for God's word. What a grace that he speaks to us. Here's the second myth. The sixth commandment is easy. Of all the Ten Commandments, this tends to be the one most people feel pretty good about. The first one where we kind of breathe a collective sigh of relief. Finally, one that I have kept. I have not always loved God with all of my heart and soul and might. I have disobeyed and disrespected my parents, but I can proudly say I have not killed anyone. Finally, and yet the Sixth Commandment prohibits as many of you know already, much more than the act of murder. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus preached on the law of Moses. He explained its true meaning, and he started, this is fascinating, he started with the sixth commandment. In Matthew 5, 21 through 22, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So according to Jesus, the sixth commandment forbids not just murder, but also murderous thoughts and motives and attitudes and words. To be angry at your wife without cause, to insult your brother, to call that driver in front of you an idiot. These are acts of murder in seed form. Have you ever noticed how Scripture names sins, and oftentimes in the New Testament, these these clusters or bunches of sins, kind of like grapes. In Galatians 5.19, Paul writes, Now the works of the flesh are evident, and then he lists several 
different words for sexual sins, and then he lists these violations of the sixth commandment. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. I warn you, as I warned you before, he writes, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Isn't that sobering? Romans 1.29, Paul mentions malice, envy, murder, strife, maliciousness. And then in Ephesians 4.31, he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Why does he use so many words? Why does he just pile up the synonyms like that? I think so that nobody's left with any wiggle room. These words give us a detailed description of the very attitudes and dispositions in our own hearts that violate the sixth commandment. Anger is that that feeling of strong displeasure that inclines you to act in judgment toward the one who displeases you. And anger is not necessarily sinful, should clarify. God himself feels anger. Psalm 78, 49 is clear. Jesus expressed anger in righteous ways in Mark 3 and Mark 10. Ephesians 4, 26, actually, Paul says, be angry and do not sin. So, When do we sin in our anger? I think we sin in our anger in two ways. When we are angry without just cause. That is, not because God's righteous law has been broken, but because somebody dared to break the laws of my kingdom. You just don't do that to me. You don't do that in my house. That bothers me. To be angry without just cause is sin. But we also sin When our anger is justified, maybe God's law really has been broken, maybe somebody actually did something wrong, but when we express that anger sinfully, either by blowing up verbally, physically, what scripture calls fits of anger, or another sinful expression of anger is clamming up and brooding and giving someone the cold shoulder and the silent treatment. I should add, murder is far, far worse in terms of its devastating effect. Oftentimes we say, you hear people say, all sins are equal to God. In terms of our guilt before God, yes, that's true. But Jesus even said to Pilate, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. To go through with murder is far, far greater than to be angry. But to be sinfully angry leaves all of us guilty of violating the sixth commandment. Scripture says that before you knew Christ, your whole life was one big violation of the sixth commandment. Look at Titus 3.3. Paul describing our condition before we knew Christ. He says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. This is how we spent our lives. Always angry at somebody, always having somebody angry at us. That's life outside of Christ. And if you're honest, you've you've probably experienced those attitudes and broken the sixth commandment at least in the last week, if not already this morning. Who do you believe has wronged you and treated you unfairly? 
Whom do you resent? Is there anyone that you dread running into around town? Toward whom do you feel ill will? Who's most likely to receive the brunt of your wrath? And none of us likes to think of himself or herself as an angry person or a bitter person, but this is a sin that we are all guilty of, and that brings us to a different misconception. That is that the sixth commandment is impossible. If, if the sixth commandment forbids not just acts of murder, but attitudes and thoughts and motives, then who can possibly keep that? And just think about the people and the situations that most provoke you to your ugliest anger. Is it other drivers on the road? Or your kids at bedtime? Or your unreasonable boss? Or that, that know-it-all coworker who just gets on everybody's nerves? Or your inconsiderate spouse? Or your mother-in-law? Think about how you act when you're angry. Don't you feel out of control when you're most angry? Out of control. Don't, don't you say and do things that you regret sometimes immediately? Have you ever told yourself or maybe even said out loud to others, I couldn't help it, I was just so mad. I mean, that's the myth I want to dispel in closing this morning. Jay Adams writes, when you say you can't hold back your anger, what you really mean is you don't or you won't. And then Adams points something out. He says, think about what happens if, just imagine, this has probably never happened to you, but try to imagine somebody who has experienced this. You, you're blowing up at your children and something's burning in the oven and the dog is going crazy and Everything is just falling apart, and you are in the middle of exploding in uncontrollable anger at whoever happened to just put you over the edge. And then the phone rings, and it's your boss. And you just answer the phone and say, oh, hello, Mr. Jones. Oh, yeah, sure, I'd be happy to take care of that. What did you just do? Adam says, you just controlled your anger. Your tone of voice changes. You're... Disposition changes. Just as you've learned to control your temper in certain settings, you can, by God's grace, learn to control your anger in any situation. The sixth commandment reveals that God's gracious will is to transform your heart and to conform your attitudes and behavior to his holy ways. Proverbs 19.11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Good sense to experience that good sense, you must first be convinced that Jesus died so that you can be forgiven for all your sinful anger. All of God's righteous anger against your sin, including your sin of unrighteous anger and murderous rage and malice and envy and bitterness, all of God's righteous anger against your sin was poured out completely on Jesus. Genesis 9-6 pronounces that Sentence, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. And as the sinless substitute for sinners, Jesus endured that sentence. By man, his blood was shed. Jesus endured more than the unrighteous hatred of man on the cross, though. Scripture's clear that he endured the righteous wrath of God so that you can be forgiven, fully 
freely, forever, for all your sinful anger and malice and bitterness. And I want to be absolutely clear since I brought up this topic. If you have had an abortion, the mercy of God abounds to you in Christ Jesus. Jesus died so that you could be forgiven. But Jesus also died so that you could be set free from slavery to angry passions. To be forgiven is glorious. We call that justification. But the good news doesn't end there. God also intends to sanctify you, to make you more like Jesus in your everyday life. So the moral law of God, like the sixth commandment, tells us what that looks like. Being united to Jesus by faith, the one who fulfilled that law, makes it possible. It is possible in Jesus to be changed and transformed. So how does Jesus set you free from sinful anger and bitterness? The, the tricky thing about bitterness is it's always focused on the sin of somebody else. Somebody wronged me, that's why I'm angry. And the tricky thing about that is we tend to think, I can't be not angry until they pay. But the only solution is to recognize that whatever sins others have committed against you, even when they are real and heinous according to God's law, your own bitterness is your own sinful response. They will give an account to God for their sin. You will give an account to God for your response to their sin against you. Which means, this is hopeful, it means you don't have to wait a single minute for somebody else to change. Started with that story of the guy in prison. He acted out full-blown anger, murdered the guy who had wronged his son, and it didn't solve his bitterness because his bitterness was his problem. This is how Christ transforms bitter hearts and conforms us to the sixth commandment. James gets to the root of this in James chapter four when he asks one of the most important questions we could ever ask, what causes fights and what causes quarrels among you? And then he answers it. Isn't it this, that your passions are at war inside of you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder, James says. And I've always wondered, what was going on in that church? I don't know that there was necessarily murder being committed, but James is getting at the heart. What, why are there fights and quarrels in your own home between husband and wife who are supposed to love each other more than they love anybody else in the world? Why are there constant fights and quarrels? It's because, James says, you want something and you don't get it. That is... The root of murderous hate is idolatrous love, wanting something more than God. Whenever you find yourself wanting something more than God and not getting that, watch out because you are in grave danger of sinning in this way. And so repent and turn and set your full hope and desire on Christ. Because God's wrath has been poured out on Christ and satisfied in his substitutionary death, you can be free from all of your unrighteous wrath. You see, anger is that intense reaction against what we perceive to be evil. We have this God-given sense of justice, although oftentimes it's miscalibrated, skewed. Nevertheless, when we think somebody has wronged us, we know something needs to be done about it, and the good news of the gospel is God has done something about all of it. Justice has been served. That means not only can you, but you must give up your right to punish those who wrong you. As Paul says in Romans 12, 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. 
Whatever sins have been committed against you, you can be confident none of them will go unpunished. Either God has already dealt with them in Christ's death on the cross, or God will hold that sinner accountable in his unrepentance. And as we meditate on the judgment of God, it, it softens our heart. There's a transforming effect. This is how God changes angry and bitter people. Matthew 7, 2, Jesus says, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. The judgment that you pronounce against others, that's the judgment, that's the standard that you will be held to. So, do you find yourself critical and harsh toward every minor infraction committed against you? Watch out. Do you really want to be held to such a standard yourself? You rage at the idiot who cuts you off in traffic. Have you never cut somebody off accidentally? You blow up at your toddler who spills milk. Have you never spilled anything? And you're an adult. If you insist every violation of your rules must be met with fire and fury, God will hold you to account for every infraction you've committed. Doesn't that just make you want to be a merciful person? That's the remedy to all of it, to be amazed by God's grace toward you in Christ. Ephesians 4, 31 through 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. What should you put on instead? This is God's will for you. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Put off bitterness and wrath and anger. Put on kindness and forgiveness and do it the way God has dealt with you. Deal with those who sin against you the way God deals with you and your sin against him with mercy. According to the sixth commandment, that's God's will for you. God means through this to make us merciful, tenderhearted, forgiving people for his glory. Let's pray. Father, when we stand before your perfect holiness, we know what we deserve. We know that we're guilty. We know that we have violated every one of your good and righteous laws. And we will never, never tire of singing the praise of your glorious grace in Christ. That you have not dealt with us according to our sins as we deserve, but you have been merciful to us. And we thank you that your grace not only saves us and justifies us, but your grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and sinful worldly passions to put off bitterness and wrath and anger. It's your grace that changes us and makes bitter, angry people into tender-hearted and merciful people. Would you do more of that transforming work in all of us this week by your grace and for your glory? In Jesus' precious name, amen.